Sarah is an MS candidate at the School of Environment and Sustainability and an MA candidate in the School of Education and a 2021 CEW plus Margaret Dow Towsley Scholar. Sarah works to bridge these two fields and create new conversations for educators to properly inform our youth about climate change, as well as promote listening to learn about the kind of world we would all like to live in in the future. Sarah, welcome, and do you mind introducing yourself and sharing more about your inspirations and motivations and a little bit about how you got to where you are today? Sure. Thanks for having me. So I'm Sarah Collins, and outside of being a dual degree student here at Rackham University of Michigan, I am also a partner and a mother, and I've got lots of plant babies and a dog and a cat. And I guess what really brought me to Michigan started back in 2018. I was a outdoor preschool teacher for an organization called Tiny Trees Preschool. It's based out of King County, Washington State. And I had a little four-year-old, we'll call him Kyle. And Kyle said to me one day while we were playing in the trees, teacher Sarah, teacher Sarah, my brother says we're all going to die when we're mom and dad's age because the earth is dying. Is that true? And at the time I was at the University of Washington in the online early care and education program, getting my bachelor's and I stutter, the world slowed down in my brain. A million thoughts went through my mind in just a couple of seconds. And at the forefront of that was, I don't know how to answer this question. I don't even know myself if that's true and nowhere in my education have I been taught how to even talk about climate change with young children, let alone any child. So that took me down undergraduate research project where I was exploring how early educators were thinking about preparing their students and their families for living in the era of the climate crisis and really starting to dive into understanding the reality of the climate crisis. And that took me to Norway to learn from peers in Norway. And that ultimately took me to Michigan, where I felt as though my education was not finished. I really wanted to get a really great grounding environment and sustainability studies at SEAS. And then one year through my SEAS program, I realized that there was still so much to learn about how the system of education functions and where there's tangible ways to interrupt, disrupt, integrate more holistic and appropriate measures to think long-term about the future of education in the context of the climate crisis. Wow, that all sounds very interesting. You've had quite the path so far. Reading about your biography, I saw that You moved from education in Washington, as you mentioned, and started to work with the University of Washington and the Department of Children, Youth, and Families on passing legislation. Can you just kind of talk about what it was like to shift there and what kind of barriers you had to overcome to make that change? So I think that it's important to have a little background here. In the United States, education is very locally based. So that means that states and local school districts have the most control of how education is funded and what gets funded. So about four-ish years ago, advocates took the initiative to put forward a legislative bill that would 
allow a three-year pilot program to see if we could actually fund outdoor early learning spaces. No state in the United States up until that point licensed outdoor early education programs, which basically means you could not receive any public funding from the state or even federally to have children learning outside for a full day. Now, that is a bit of a problem for many reasons, one being that If you are like most parents, I would venture to say in America, you need both parents working. And if you don't have both parents working, it's because it's financially doesn't make sense to have one parent essentially paying for childcare because of how expensive it is in this country. So a lot of families are stuck with the decision of either one parent, if they do have the privilege of having two parents in the home, getting to stay home to be with their kids when they're young before traditional school age at kindergarten or they need extensive full-day care, eight-plus hours of care. In the United States, we have what we call many child care deserts. So that means for every one slot of licensed child care, three children need that slot. And then on top of that, the outdoor environmental ed life and lifestyle and experience is often gate-kept by your social economic status and dominant culture of whiteness. And so for families who are not a part of that dominant culture, often don't have the same kind of access to outdoor learning spaces, especially for their young kiddos. So Washington had a lot of early care advocates, teachers, families, communities realize that this was a gap of how we were able to serve children. And so they proposed a process to pilot some programs, see how we could review standards and regulations, and then very excited to announce that we have now since licensed outdoor early childcare in Washington state. So my role was twofold. One, I was teaching in Fort Tiny Trees Preschool, which was one of the, I believe it was nine programs, although that number might've changed, that were a part of the pilot project. So that means that my classroom, my colleagues' classrooms, which were in city parks, So I worked at Carkeek Park in Seattle, Cougar Mountain, and Five Mile in the different school years or times of the year. And that would mean that we would have people from the Department of Children, Youth, and Families come out to our classroom or and do some observations or outside of classroom hours, talk with our staff and our teachers about how we could change the regulations to meet the outdoor space environment. We need to consider things like hygiene, toileting, changing if you're, you know, you need to get changed as a children. For full day care, you have to think about these young children, you know, typically three to five, maybe maybe two to six in that range. They need to rest if they're there all day. So how can you safely rest in all weather, in all spaces outside? And more of those kind of like nitpicky logistical details. So we spent time in a lot of communication back and forth about the state. At the same time, because I had started engaging in this undergraduate research at University of Washington, my research advisor, Dr. Mary Clevenger Bright, invited me to join a collaborative working group that was trying to develop the professional development online 
program that would go alongside the legislation. So you can't just say to any early educator here in the U.S., okay, it's safe to take kids outside for eight hours and all times of year in Washington state. So we would need to have a component of professional development and teacher education of how to keep your children safe and what to do with them outside. And we had to figure out how to do that in about 10 modules that were fairly brief. So this is like a continuing ed sort of experience, probably online. We had a small group of people at the academy, faculty, graduate students, undergraduate students. And then we worked with the pilot project staff at DCYF. And then we also worked with Cultivate Learning, which is akin to University of Michigan's Center of Academic Innovation, where they build online learning experiences, their learning experience designers. And we also worked with our colleagues at Queen Maud University College in Trondheim, Norway. And we had to kind of think about what is the most important information to get across and how realistic is it to do that in, you know, relatively, let's say about a 10 hour module program that is self-paced. So that was where my work was. And I think that the barriers that we came into is that part of the beauty of outdoor early learning programs is no one space is exactly the same. And when you're talking the whole state of Washington, we have such different geography and weather experiences throughout the year. You know, you can be right on the coast um, of the Sound or of even the Pacific Ocean. You can be more mountainy you know, typical rainforest, you can be in high desert plains. And so no one outdoor learning program is going to look exactly like the others. Also where they're located can even just in tiny trees is vastly different. You could be at a very manicured Seattle arts museum location that has a lot of concrete manicured grass and a conservatory kind of place. Or you could be at Cougar Mountain in Issaquah where there are literal black bears and cougars that you have to account for. Or you could be at another city park that maybe has no facilities that are easy for you to get your children to the toilet versus other programs, maybe on Vashon Island that were not a part of Tiny Trees that you dug a hole when you went to the bathroom or you used a compostable toilet. Access. There's one location in Carkeek Park that if you do not have a car, it's a mile hike from the nearest bus. So there's so many things you have to consider when you create licensing and so many experiences that you could be having with your students. There's a beautiful park called Seahurst Park, just south of White Center in Seattle area where they have this great massive exposed open clay wall and the kids could harvest clay, but you have to learn how to harvest safely. It is a bit of a cliffside or picking berries, but maybe your park doesn't have berries. Maybe your park staff actually sprays chemicals and you have to know what areas are safe to spray chemicals. My location, we had a bunch of duck and geese poop all over the fields during certain times of year. So knowing how to interact in that space, but not use maybe the playground as a place where you're going every day. You're really trying to have nature immersion experience. So having to figure out what are the overarching themes of risky play? What are the overarching ways we need to consider 
being place-based, but also understanding of what it means to be safe in an open space for long periods of time. You did mention then feeling like your education wasn't over even after all that research and all that work. So can you kind of talk about that decision, especially going through school, going through your master's during the pandemic and being a student caregiver and just kind of what that looks like? Yeah. So, I mean, I'll be totally frank with you. When the pandemic hit, I was in the process of applying to grad school. I felt very much like that was my next step forward is because I didn't want my work to end. And I felt like what I had learned in my undergraduate research was that education needed more work as well, especially considering a climate crisis, a global crisis that is rooted in inequity and injustice. And how do we move forward in that space in our country? But then the pandemic hit and I thought to myself, well, we really don't know what's going to happen with this pandemic. I mean, I was living in the Seattle area, one of the first spaces in the country that was really experiencing the pandemic, you know, by a couple of weeks ahead of time. And we didn't really know what was going to be happening. My partner's industry and live event production completely halted. And we thought, well, until we really know more, maybe I defer a year. And I thought maybe I should defer, just not knowing I maybe had the opportunity to still work. Everything was just so unknown at the time. And actually, my boss told me, even though we were an outdoor program and would likely be able to come back in some capacity, Tiny Trees is a nonprofit. That basically means that there's some public funding that happens, private fundraising, and also parent tuition, family tuition. And so my boss straight up told me, you know, Sarah, if you have the opportunity to go to school, I would really never give this advice, but maybe you go live off of student loans because I don't know that we'll have a job for you come fall. And we just don't know what the world will look like, but it's likely education will still be an option. And so I decided to come to C's. I thought the opportunities that Michigan offered for research, network, connection, and the content that C's provides was something that I would really need and value. And so we made the move. It was weird going from Seattle, a very often more progressive in light of other places in the country across the United States back to Michigan was an experience That first year, you know, we basically lived in our apartment, didn't go out very much, but I was really pleased with how the university was adjusting, how faculty, whether they were comfortable with technology or not, stepped up with what they had and tried to make it a good experience for us. That first year, all three people in my household, including my then second grader, was online remote school full time. It is hard as a student parent. It is hard whether you have someone as a partner or not in your life. So much of grad school is deep thinking and critical thinking, group projects, making time for things that are not class time that can quickly eat up most of your week and most of your available time. And that's really hard to balance as a student parent, something that I think all student parents, no matter where they're at, but definitely in Michigan, is the financial burden. The federal way that they break down cost of attendance, the way that the system works is that even if they ask you about your children or your household and all of that, 
it really doesn't account for how the cost of living has gone up in this area in Ann Arbor. And as a student parent, what you can receive via the federal government, if you're not so lucky to receive the very limited funding here at University of Michigan as an out-of-state student or an international student is very steep. It doesn't meet your financial needs. It is with great conviction that I must believe that the risk and the debt that a student parent takes on will be outweighed by the benefit of attending the program. Wow, that's amazing that you can show how much you believe in education there, pursuing it so intensely yourself. So going back to then being a parent and about navigating the challenging work that you do while being a student parent, do you have any tips for other parents as they too try to have these conversations with their kids or even specific books and resources that you recommend? Sure. There is a daily questionnaire that I get. The Climate Journal Project, you can sign up for their daily emails and they'll send you questions that help you personally kind of think about how the climate crisis is impacting you or how you're navigating it. They often have other resources that can help. And I have found that Some of the questions are really good conversation starters for kids. You have to think about your child's maturity, your child's understanding their development space. And there was a study done by Ipsos Mori in the last year or two where they found that you're six times more likely to see something negative about the climate crisis than you are to see something positive. So a lot of the climate education that's happening let's say in grade school is a hit or miss. Your kids may or may not have the conversations coming up. When my daughter was in kindergarten, I mean, she came home telling me that the polar bears were dying out. And our neighbor kid just last year told us we really need to turn off all the lights in our house and the rooms that we weren't using because of leaving the lights on is what's killing the polar bears. So it's a delicate balance because kids know that something is going on. Depending on where you live, you might feel it more acutely than maybe what we do here in Ann Arbor. And you don't want to pretend that it's not happening. Much like we know that colorblind education doesn't actually help disrupt racism and doesn't teach children to be anti-racist, we can't not talk about the climate. It is real. It's happening now. And we are experiencing it. The pandemic very well may be a symptom of it. And we can expect that we know science tells us that we can expect more infectious disease. We can expect more severe, inconsistent, major natural disaster or weather events. So it is happening and no one alive today and no one born tomorrow is not going to experience the impacts of climate change. What I would recommend is if you don't know the answer, be honest. Oh, I don't know, sweetheart. I will find out what I can about it and we can talk about it again when I know more. Or you can say, that's a great question. Why don't we look it up together if you think your kid is old enough to see or read or hear some hard truths and always come back to, well, what can we personally do that can either help our community or make changes in our household? Or if you are going to make the changes in your household without it coming naturally in a conversation with your kiddo, being honest, we're making this change so that everyone in our community has a longer, better life in our community together. If your kid wants to be a fashion designer, but you know that 
the fast fashion industry is a huge contributor to global emissions, then you can say, oh, I wonder what kinds of clothes our community could use help with or what they would be interested in trying to bring it more locally back to what they know here, what they can see here and what kind of impact they can have here. And at the same time, demonstrating that we all know that as individuals, our contributions can feel insignificant when we know that so many of our system, people with more decision-making power, they need to be making those changes, right? So as adults, the most powerful thing we can do is vote with our dollar. The most powerful thing we can do is as a consumer that is, unless you're completely off grid, you're pretty much trapped to contribute in some way (laughs) to global emissions. And the most powerful thing you can do is vote with your dollar every time you buy something. And that is hard and it's not fair. And quite frankly, here in the U.S., we still have it a lot better than other places in the world and the kinds of choices they have and the kind of choices that are being taken from them because of the convenience of our lifestyle today. And so voting with your dollar is really powerful. Finding positive stories is really powerful. Letting your kids know that people do care. People are doing things about it. Finding the local projects in your area Ann Arbor has a great carbon neutrality effort happening. We have great initiatives happening in this area, but a lot of communities around our country also are doing great, amazing things. And we need to be looking for them and amplifying them because how are you supposed to feel like you can do anything if you never see other people doing anything? Definitely. Wow, that was all great advice. Um, (laughs) And you mentioned a lot of this call to action, especially with parenting, but do you have any call to action you want to end on and share as we're all listening to this conversation and considering how we want a better future for all of us in our community? Yeah, sure. So any place that you are a community member of, there is often community town halls, often opportunities to speak to decision makers in your area, and often they ask for public comment. If you're a student at University of Michigan, you can reach out to the regents in the provost's office and the temporary presidential office and say, the new president needs to make the presidential Commission on Carbon Neutrality and making that appointment for that person who's going to be in charge of that effort at University of Michigan, that needs to be a priority of theirs. They need to have a plan of how they're going to make that one of the first actions that they do when they come in, because that has been halted with our president changes here at the university. At your school districts, you can send in questions to your school district or attend your school district meetings and say, hey, what are you doing to ensure that we are talking about sustainability in our programs? What are we doing to make sure that our school district is making sustainable choices? And what is our district doing to serve the most vulnerable in our community? I think there's a big mistake being made with a lot of situations where we want to silo issues. We want to silo racial justice, economic justice, ability justice, and climate justice. We want to put them all separately, but they are so intimately linked. So if you see an opportunity to be an ally, an advocate, 
for all these different populations and groups and spaces, your contribution to that space does improve our chances of slowing down climate change and making a more habitable future for all. And so think about them as enmeshed topics. And anytime you have that opportunity to ask questions, vote with your dollar and support the work that's being done, know that any social justice issue is improving climate justice and ask the questions of how is this action that I'm taking up helping or could be improved by including more conversation about the climate. Great. Thank you so much for sharing. That's all I had today, but I'm excited to see what other work you're doing in the future and keeping up with that. And thank you so much for sharing everything today. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me.